here's a question for you. Who was the number one box office film star in 1955? Well, here's a hint. Hollywood starlet Rita Hayworth used to throw empty champagne bottles onto his roof. The Hollywood superstar in question... Well, if you guessed Glenn Ford, you would be correct. Hi, everyone. I'm Neil Scott. Welcome to Star Catcher, the podcast. True stories from Hollywood's golden age, as told by the man who was there when they said it, John Charles Frederick. He's a distinguished Hollywood producer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit and is the author of the top-selling book by the same name, Starcatcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy, which is available at Amazon and wherever popular books are sold. In our last podcast, John talked about his encounters with John Wayne and how he wrote the last film that Wayne appeared in, Home of the Seabees, and some of the private moments that he shared with the Duke. By the way, if you're a new listener to this podcast, you may want to go back and listen to the previous one at some point, especially if you're a John Wayne fan. And in this edition of Starcatcher, the podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about the movie business in the golden age of Hollywood with anecdotes, quotes, and stories about Glenn Ford, James Drury, and more. Plus, a few more memories about John's dealings with the Duke, John Wayne. Author John Frederick was at the right place at the right time, and he's got numerous stories to tell. John, before we talk about your dealings with legendary actor Glenn Ford, who was the number one box office attraction back in 1955, talk a little bit about how different Hollywood was back in the heyday. Well, Neil, it, it was a whole different world in those days. For example, the major studios, that would be MGM and Paramount, Warner Brothers and Universal, they turned out 50 films a year. MGM had a roster of stars that included from Marie Dressler to Gene Harlow, Gable, Lana Turner, Spencer Tracy, but also character actors like Frank Morgan and others, they were all under contract. They had their own makeup department, they had costumes department, they had, they did their own, actually they, they had a film lab where they produced their own negatives and things, and uh, they had a commissary that featured Louis B. Mayer's chicken soup, his mother's chicken soup. They had post offices, they had even had police departments. Everything was contained. I had a relative who worked at Sound at MGM, and Paul uh, had a gold card. He could go back at any time to MGM and get a haircut or get a you know a bowl of that chicken soup or anything. He had a, a free run. It was very paternalistic. And I later, of course, in my life, I was able to uh, attend a reunion called the Studio Kids at Vanity Fair. It was a big, big affair where Annie Leibovitz took a picture of all these stars from the Golden Age. About 37 of them showed up, Van Johnson, Robert Young, Bob Stack, uh, Lassie also, Catherine Grayson. It was really quite something, and I was fortunate enough to be there 
everything was at the kind of favored the studios. They had all, of course, they had all the lawyers and everything. And I remember reading once that after he left MGM, Walter Pigeon, and he wasn't the only one, he said, we didn't know how to do anything. We didn't know how to order dinner. We didn't know how to make a reservation. We didn't know how to get, a, you know, the studio handled everything. And so that's an amazing system. And of course, it, it is not, doesn't exist anymore. But a lot of the people that worked there liked it and found it uh, easy to work with. Uh, there's some nostalgia. I was I was so happy to be at that reunion in 1995 where all the old timers got together. Richard Woodmark and, and Ernie Borgnine and Robert Young and Tony Curtis were all sitting around talking. And yeah, it was something to see. What did you learn from all of that, John? Well, let's see. I learned that I liked old actors and old movies uh, as far as... For myself, I had never gone to cinema school. There weren't any to speak of in my day. I didn't go uh, to USC or I didn't take theater or this, that, and the other thing. All I had going for myself in those days was that I really, really loved movies. And when I would look at movies, even as a young boy, I remember thinking, how did they do that? Why did this go from one place to another? Why am I looking at him now and his whole face is, is on the screen? And a minute ago, there, were, there was a whole group. Why are they doing that? In our previous podcast, you talked extensively about John Wayne. Tell me a bit more about the Duke. Neil, I tell you what, you can't leave the subject of John Wayne. I found out there are several stories in, in my new book, Starcatcher, that are concerned with John Wayne that have never been published or seen anywhere because they were things that happened when I was around him or questions that I asked him and so forth. There's so much about him. It was just a, year, a few years ago. He's still in the top 10 of movie stars. I mean, John Wayne is still a living legend, even though he's been gone since 1979, I guess. But what happened with him and his career that it left him very wary and very distrustful, and he was boosted. He was going to be, he was picked to do a really big movie in 1931. It was called The Big Trail. Raoul Walsh was the director. It was the story of, you know, crossing the plains. It didn't work because they tried to do something that wouldn't be developed for another 45 years or so, and that was the, the big screen. You had to re redo the theaters almost to get the benefit of this. This is in the middle of the Depression. Theater owners were, were just happy to survive. They weren't going to put in new sound equipment and screens and things like that. So it flopped. After that, no one really wanted anything to do with John Wayne. He was associated with the big trail, which had failed. And so he got jobs a lot of jobs. He got jobs at places like Cosmopolitan and Tiffany and Mascot. He did serials. He did probably a hundred films in the period between 1931 and 1939. And he was popular in these B-Westerns. He did other things. He went to Universal for a while. And they had him as a you know a military man, a newspaper man, or this or that. But that, those didn't work either. And so he would go from studio to studio, just picking up jobs when he could. And he did work steadily. But I mean, he was working seven days a week just to keep food on the table for his his wife. And I think that he had four children by then. And so he worked and worked and worked. But also, I know at Columbia. 
he was fired actually because he was, according to the head of the studio, Harry Cohen, he was messing with Cohen's girlfriend, and so he was fired. And John Wayne had a long memory. Harry Cohen, from time to time, would send a script over there, and Wayne never worked at Columbia. He said he never would ever. Even when Cohen died, he wouldn't he wouldn't make a film for Columbia. He remembered all the slights, and that was a quote of his that I understood much better after I heard it. I asked him what the hardest thing in that 50-year career was, and he said, keeping your innocence and enthusiasm in the face of terrible rejection. And he had that really serious, kind of a sad hangdog look on his face when he said it. So I got the picture that he still was haunted by those years in the wilderness of, I guess, the basement, really, of, of Hollywood movies. And all those studios that I mentioned no longer exist. They were all scooped up by Republic. And he ended up, at the end of the 30s, getting a pretty good contract from Republic. But he had he was not yet a star in the sense that uh, he was a household word. People who fans of Westerns knew who he was, and there were a lot of competitors as far as Westerns go. What happened in this period was that working seven days a week, I remember he said they did one picture, he said 10000 bucks. He said that was the budget on the movie. He said we had one horse in the movie, and I had to kale the heavy to steal his course, otherwise I'd had to walk from scene to scene. That's how bad they were. I asked him, had he ever seen any of those old movies? And he went, (laughs) no, no. But in that period, it became a very much a learning period for him. And (laughs) he knew the meaning of work. And he worked very, very hard. He was a good soldier. He developed a friendship with a man named Yakima Canute. And Yak was an, uh, an Indian from Washington State. And he drifted down to Hollywood. There was a place on Hollywood called Gower Gulch. Anyway, Gower Gulch was where a bunch of cowboys from all over ended up there because they were needed as extras and so forth in all these dozens and dozens and dozens of Westerns that were being cranked out every month, you know, by the various studios. He and Yak, uh, Yak, by the way, was was an actor in several of these old Wayne vehicles. He had been a champion cowboy. So he became first a stunt man. Uh, matter of fact, he he was the stunt coordinator in Ben Hur. If you ever watch scenes from the 30s, the early 30s, and the silent westerns, you watch when there's a fight scene that people quite obviously are hitting each other, not not like we see them today, but pounding the shoulders, of the, and you had to really cut quickly and do this because they look so ridiculous. What are you going to do by hitting somebody on the shoulder? I mean, it's just, it's amazing. I assume they did that to save some broken bones and maybe some lost time due to someone getting KO'd. But Wayne and Canute worked out what are still used in in movies today. The blocking. Our fight can look like it's a real fight when it isn't. The angles are such and the blocking is such. Then you add the sound effects and you've got to fight. You look back and think of Wayne's fighting scenes. They're spectacular. And he was the one, the two of them, were the one that developed that technique. And that alone uh, made the Western much more realistic. 
Yeah, he said, you know, those things, those those stems, they were 58 minutes, 60 minutes. You know, you got so little time. You, you know, did I tell you about dog heavies? He asked me one day. And I said, no, but I've heard the term. Yeah, well, he said, look, uh, it's like this. In these short things under an hour, you don't develop character, really. So what would happen is uh, a guy in a black hat, you know, He'd be walking down a Western street and he'd come across a dog and kick it. And so they began to call those characters dog heavies. And there's actually two kinds of heavies. You got the brain heavy, see? And the brain heavy never fights. He sends dog heavies out to fight. And they do all the dirty work. And the and the brain heavy never of course, at the end, there's a confrontation with the brain heavy, and he gets killed and all that, but he never fights. He sends his henchmen, these dog heavies, out to fight. Let's talk about another Hollywood legend who you worked with, the great actor Glenn Ford, who you worked with early in your career. And, of course, in 1955, he was the number one box office attraction. What was that like working with a legend in Glenn Ford? Well, Glenn Ford, of course, 1955, I was a junior in high school. I saw a film called The Blackboard Jungle. Glenn Ford was in, I don't know how many films, Don't Go Near the Water, Cry for Happy. He had a role of really, really good pictures. There was a Jimmy Stewart quality about him, vulnerability about him. You know, he was just Mr. Everyman. And yet you could imagine in a way that maybe I could be Glenn Ford. It was quite something to find out when I was at the Hollywood office that he actually was a uh, captain in the Naval Reserve. He would come into the office periodically, and I could see him, introduced to him and he was, as a civilian. Again, he, he had been making movies since 1939, and he'd been a star, actually, through that time, with time out for World War II, where he was a, uh, I think he was a sergeant in the Marine Corps. And so the idea that I could meet Glenn Ford, who I, I loved his acting, I, I, I was very fond of the films he made, I've seen a lot of them. Here I am, and here he is, the idea that somehow that I would be able to write a film that he would narrate, would almost at the time would never have occurred to me, but it certainly was a big experience when that did happen. I did meet him in a uniform sense when he was doing a narration on a film having something to do with it was a navy film and i was to drive him or meet him out in uh, norton which was out in san bernardino is where the uh, film was shot he preferred to drive down himself by hearing his words on this film which wasn't mine i hadn't written anything yet but it was a, a pretty boring actually it was about fitness reports and i can't remember any marvelous things about it, except, of course, these were the on-camera sequences which would bookcase the film, and then his narration would be other things having to do with fitness reports and so forth and so forth. We spent that uh, that day together. He was very, very nice, uh, very nice to me. He mentioned he was having trouble with his back. He uh, uh, had made a lot of Westerns. What happens when you end up falling off a horse is not really a good thing as far as your back is concerned. And, and most of the uh, people who did Westerns, I know Gary Cooper, for one, had a very, very strong distrust of horses. He, he uh, 
and and again cooper had taken a few uh untoward there were accidents involved and so forth so he had a bad back that really he you could lay to his, his accidents with horses he would talk about a movie he made called the white tower i'd mentioned it to him about mountain climbing and so forth and how i much enjoyed that and on and on I can't say that we were friends or anything like that. He knew who I was around the office, and if he came in, he would say hello. And and I did go to his house several times. Even after I got out of the the active duty Navy, we would see each other from time to time. And and, uh, I had developed a project later on that Ford said he was willing to uh, narrate. It was about the 40th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. Both he and Jackie Cooper had agreed to co-narrate it, but for various reasons, the military didn't want to do it. And of course, Ford, uh, you know, was a movie star into the early 60s and then did television shows and the television series. He started with a show called Cades County, and he could be counted on to come into our office every couple of weeks or so. Just to, He liked being around the Navy. He liked, uh, he liked the idea of being a captain. Let's face it, he looked good in his uniform. I can't say I knew him as well as I knew uh, some of the other people I got to uh, to meet, but hearing him again, hearing him speak words that I had written was a personally a very satisfying experience, and that he, he didn't call for changes or anything. When we did uh, the, the Operation Readiness script, he, didn't, he just read it straight through like a pro. He lived, I remember that, he lived on Oxford Drive, which is right above the Beverly Hills Hotel. I probably went over there about five or six times anyway, over the years. He lived to be 90 and uh, was uh, one of the great stars of Hollywood's golden age, no question about it. In your new book, Starcatcher, A True Life Hollywood Fantasy, John, you share some interesting stories about a guy you actually went to school with back in Salem, Oregon. Now, he was a couple of years ahead of you. You went off to the Navy, and he went off to Hollywood to become television's Virginian, among his many acting roles. Tell me about James Drury. Jim Drury, actually, we had gone to school together. I think I would have been a sophomore he was a senior. I didn't know of him then. Jim Drury was from my hometown, Salem, Oregon. When I was getting started in the business, I happened to call him on something, a project I had. Uh, I had written a project that would would have fit him perfectly. It was called The Ombudsman. And it, this was an ex-college uh, football star, professional rodeo artist who, who became a big successful rancher and so forth and so forth. And he would be retained by the governor and kept in the govern, governor's office to discover all kinds of problems he would he would go out on his own and set up shops in a shopping center a parking lot and so forth and and he'd hang out now everybody knew who this guy was he'd been a famous college star he'd been a famous radio star so this was perfect for jim who would after all he'd been the virginians for 10 years i think that 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 thing ran it was still on at the time i met him but uh i was able to get his uh phone number from uh Actually, my mother got it. <laughs> she knew the uh, she knew his grand his uh, grandfather, 
who was actually on my paper route, I think. And and anyway, so I ended up giving him a call. And, of course, he remembered, oh, Salem High, yeah, yeah. He had a great voice. He could have done, had he wished, he could have done commercials by the score because he had a very Wellesian, stentorian, wonderful voice. And so I was able to call him and say, would you like to, uh, I've got, a, got this name. And he wanted, of all things, in our conversations, he loved the military. He had been to Vietnam. He um, he supported the troops. A lot of the actors and the Hollywood version of a cowboy tend to be a little bit right wing in their thinking. And Jim was a great believer in the Western, you know, the cowboy code that Gene Autry did. He, I mean, he really bought into it. And the reason is, is, is kind of fascinating. His father was a professor at New York University, but the mother was from Salem, Oregon, and she loved the West. So when he was, he wasn't like six weeks old, and mom took him West, and every year he'd spend half his time in Oregon, or as much time as he could, and then he'd go back to school in New York. His latter part of his, I guess his high school years, he asked if he couldn't live with his grandparents in, in in Salem because he preferred the West. And his grandfather was a hunter and a fisherman and a writer. And so he introduced Jim to all these things that would become just like second nature to him almost. When he got to Hollywood and eventually became the Virginian, he could ride and rope and shoot. And, you know, he could do all that stuff. He, he was uh, he was the real deal. He was he was a Westerner, even though he had appeared, I think, back in, in New York in a Broadway stage play. His heart was in the West. And, and when he uh, when he got old enough, he went and lived in the West. He just like he liked being out here. We talked about this and that, and I said, listen, I'm right. I've just finished script here on, on naval aviation. He said, you know, I'd like to get a Navy commission. I know Jackie Cooper and Glenn Ford and some other people have, and uh, I'm, I'm interested in that. Uh, could I help? Well, I, I did all I could. I don't know how much I helped. I certainly wrote him a, a glowing letter of recommendation and, uh, and sought as much as I could to see that he got that commission, and eventually, by golly, he did, and retired as a full commander. So. I went to his house. He had a wonderful place up in Hollywood, in the Hollywood Hills that overlooked the uh, San Fernando Valley. I got this movie now, which is called Flight from Yesterday. And he had agreed to do it. He was still working on the Virginian, so we had to book it at night and in a, in a sound house. After that, I remember we celebrated... When the film came out, we celebrated by going to Dino's Lodge, which if you remember 77 Sunset Strip, that was where Dino's Lodge, this restaurant, which Dean Martin, if he did not own, certainly represented uh, uh, the restaurant. I had put the film together in Hollywood. We had There was a naval liaison officer came from uh, Pensacola to look over my shoulder. But he didn't know anything about making movies, so it was all news to him. I probably took months and months to put this one together because there was so much involved, the different World War II footage and the restoration of that footage and, and so forth. But we had it all together. I flew back to Washington with it, and I was to show it in the Pentagon. And I could see a little room called, called the tank, whatever. Anyway, this is a bunch of people from the Office of Information, a bunch of naval aviators and so forth were there. A lot depended on this particular screening, and, and no one had seen the film. And so at the last minute, 
we're waiting and waiting and waiting for the, this commanding officer, the admiral, vice admiral, head of the chief naval educator. He flew in. There he is in his flight jacket, and then he comes in. Everybody, nobody in the Pentagon had that on their flight jackets, but he did. Okay, you know, let's see it. So at the end of the movie, I could see all these. This was uh, like showing a film in front of maybe 26 critics. They all had their notepads. I could tell they were ready to pick holes in, in this movie. I'm more than, you know, apprehensive. And the movie's over, and uh, this admiral jumps up, runs over, shakes my hand, said, that's just what I wanted. And that's it. I can I can hear pencil points breaking all throughout the room. There was nothing much they could do after that. So the film was a huge success. It raised millions. It was shown all over the place, Navy, uh, Navy League functions and other functions. It made a ton of money, and they had built that museum, which is fabulous and fantastic. Pensacola, the the one we we shot around or in, had been an ex warehouse and had no no glamour to it, no anything but naval aviation. Pensacola is the home of naval aviation, so this was it was the film that launched the uh, the museum. Later on, it was so successful that they had us make a longer version, which was narrated by uh, Rod Serling. That was a longer film with more people in it and a different approach. The two films together, I know, raised many, many millions of dollars, a few hundred of which I got to keep myself. Not millions, a few hundred dollars. <laughs> I was just paid Lieutenant Commander's pay. That six months would have constituted my grade school, middle school, high school, and college, and flight from yesterday actually was, was I say, my graduate school. Jim narrated a movie for me. By the way, he did call every once in a while. You got to come down to the set today. And on one occasion uh, in 1969, there were a lot of there were political assassinations. Robert Kennedy and and uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And it was a time when television was forced to look at itself. And there were a lot of people, Congress people, and other people, the public at large, that didn't like the uh, the violence. The violence on television in the Lone Ranger Gene Autry days you just you know you shot the guns out of people's hands and that kind of business and there was no blood involved and it wasn't it was pretty tame stuff really for a while there was a kind of a self-regulation against violence and Jim was a pretty strong western T-man type guy and now all of a sudden he has to talk the villain out of his six guns and maybe shoot it out of his hand, maybe. Anyway, he thought that was stupid. He said that that was, you know, you're, you're just, that's not reality. Maybe a couple of years later, it started to slide back. And so I can remember it was pretty funny. He called me up. I was, I think I was still at the Hollywood office. He called me and said, get down to the set tomorrow. I get to kill six guys. I mean, it had been a year or two since he got the, you know, uh, do any real Western shooting. So I went down there and uh, sat with him and watched him kill six guys. One guy fell off a, off a balcony and into a back of a wagon. Of course, there was a, you know, a, a mattress or something, a whole bunch of mattresses in there, which he didn't see. And, uh, shoot a guy off a horse. Yeah, he had a great day. Uh, that was a, a big day. As I say in the book, he was a true Western hero. He stood for good against evil with his six gun there on that dusty street 
at Universal Studios Hollywood in the fall of 1972. I did go to Jim's house. Uh, Jim Jim had uh, when you saw him, he looked like a college professor. I mean, he was for one thing, he was shorter than you think. All stars that you meet, with the exception of the John Waynes and the Jim Arnesses, all stars are smaller than you think they ought to be. I mean, if you meet Jack Nicholson or Brando, Nicholson and Joe Pesci and one other guy, I've forgotten who, were a threesome at Lake Sherwood at the golf course, and, and it looked like uh, they, they, they weren't quite midgets, but they were they were quite small, you'd say. Well, Jim was 5'10", but on the screen, he, he played six foot one or two. You, you, you thought he was. And, of course, the Western Street at Universal was built at seven-eighths normal size. So it made guys who weren't six foot what they, what they were. And he played tall. You know, he offered me a drink. He, again, he looked like a college professor. He had glasses, you know, like... Uh, Clark kept glasses on, and uh, we sat around, and pretty soon uh, Doug McClure showed up. He was about half in the bag, and he was just having a wonderful time. And I, Jim lived on a street that was hard to get around, those, those, those streets up in the Hollywood Hills. I mean, they're very narrow and windy, and I, I looked at Doug McClure, and I thought, oh, I wonder how he made it. We spent some time together. Around Jim went off to Texas. He lived there. He had a website. He was very popular. He got into oil a little bit and this and that and the other thing. I remember him with great effects, one of the great stars, certainly one of the great stars of television as far as Westerns go. But I'll never forget, calm down to the set today. I get to kill six guys. Yeah, okay, I'll be right there. Well, that wraps up this edition of Starcatcher, the podcast. True stories from Hollywood's golden age, as told by the man who was there when they said it. John Frederick, a distinguished Hollywood producer who has some 50 films and documentaries to his credit and is the author of the best-selling book by the same name, Star Catcher, a true-life Hollywood fantasy. It's available at Amazon and wherever popular books are sold. Now, we certainly hope that you've enjoyed this podcast, and if you did... There's a few things you can do to help us. Number one, subscribe to our podcast. Number two, leave a review. And number three, by all means, share this podcast with your friends. In the next edition of Star Catcher, the podcast, author John Frederick will reminisce about his experiences with Rod Serling, Julie Harris, and the great Bob Hope. Until next time. I'm Neil Scott. Hooray for Hollywood. <laughs>